Hey, Nick. Yes? Do you like horror movies? Oh, you know I do. Do you like weird, extreme, taboo, and cult horror movies? Of course. They're my favorite kind. Well, I've got some news for you. Because MVD Entertainment Group and the popular Rue Morgue magazine have teamed up to launch the Midnight Movie Society. What? Yeah. They are a curated subscription video on demand service specializing in extreme underground, taboo, and cult horror movies. Now, genre fans can gain access to a film library of shocking underground, outrageous gore, creature features, cult classics, and much more. Those with a taste for the weirdest and wildest reaches of genre cinema will not be disappointed. The bigger platforms are catering to the masses and have gone puritanical in many cases, making it very difficult for filmmakers to reach their audiences, says Ed Seaman, COO of MVD Entertainment Group. MVD has a great deal of this type of content, and when it is live on major platforms, it performs really well. Maybe too well. For some of the mainstream platforms. The Midnight Movie Society will also cater to more traditional horror fare as well, pulling from the thousands of film hours from in MVD's vast catalog. In addition, Rumord will also be finding and curating fresh and unusual content for the service. Adriana Gober, director of programming, says as larger streaming platforms continue to crack down on content, there's an urgent need to create a space for boundary-pushing films unencumbered by strangling content restrictions. That I don't know why that word was so hard for me to say. <laughs> strangling. Strangling, especially given the content. As a lifelong horror fan, I'm proud and excited to be working with MVD Entertainment Group and genre champions Rumor Magazine to bring Midnight Movie Society to the masses. Rumor Magazine is a name that everyone can trust. It's actually a horror magazine I used to buy back in the day, and they're Canadian, so you know they're extra fucking weird. And nice. Yeah, and nice. Best of all, Midnight Movie Society is supplying all of our amazing listeners with an opportunity to get on board and try the service out for themselves. If you go to www midnightmoviesociety.com you can save 33% off your first three months of Midnight Movie Society by using the promo code SHAMELESS SHAMELESS! SHAMELESS! Own promo code! Yes, you heard me, you will save a whopping 33% on your first three months. That's just insanity to me. So, once again, go to www.midnightmoviesociety.com and use the promo code SHAMELESS S-H-A-M-E-L-I-S-T Shameless. No spaces. No spaces. All one word. Shameless. It's like you're yelling it at someone. Yell it at the promo code, but also make sure you type it in. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I slept in this morning. I could tell. I slept in. We, um, yesterday, we're like, um, have you heard of the show The Politician? Uh, no. It's, um, one of the Ryan Murphy, the Brad... Falchek, I want to say. Um, another Is one of their that shows. that the guy who does like, all the CSI shit? No, uh, American Horror Story. Oh, that's and it. Glee that's it. Yeah. So The Politician is, I believe, their latest show. He, um, did, a sh- he did a show I really liked uh, recently. Uh, but tell me uh, tell me about your show, and I'll tell you the ones I liked by him. All right. Um, it's, um, I can't think of his name. It, it stars... Um, um, the actor that plays Evan Hansen. The name is escaping me. I was just looking at his Who's Instagram. Evan Hansen? Uh, it's a musical. Dear Evan Hansen is a musical. Oh. Well, um, I, I'm not super well-versed with musicals. Um, and it's about um, a high school 
class president election that everyone is okay. taking way more seriously than any high school presidential election I've ever heard. But they <laughs> but they build it up in a way that you like you. I went along on that ride, even though it's like as a concept, I'm like, why would you all care so much about this? But they did it in a way that I believe that it was actually important to everyone. Okay. Um, so we ended up watching the entire, there's only one season out. We watched the entire season yesterday, <laughs> stayed up till midnight. And it sounds so then, interesting. It sounds interesting. Um, it, it's like, there's way more like attempted murder than there should be in a high school show. That's cool. Um, <laughs> So the uh, what where where can I see this show? Uh, Hulu. All right, I'll check that out because yeah. funny enough, like so you know he's known for American Horror Story, and I feel like the, well those two they're known for Glee and American Horror Story. Yeah, I, th- I believe that's their kind of. Um, I never really watched Glee. I know it was a big hit. It just wasn't for me. Uh, I watched some of American Horror Story. Uh, but it's funny. I I seem to like those duos or or maybe even those producers more when they're not doing American Horror Story. Because <laughs> like I really liked the show they did called Scream Queens. Oh yeah, yep. I I, I, I saw like sh- the first episode of it and yeah, um... season one I thought was phenomenal. Season two was was pretty good. I wish it would have gotten a season three. But then Ryan Murphy specifically did a show I I really liked called feud betty and joan and it was about the the real life feud feud between betty davis and joan crawford oh awesome and how they hated each other and how that (laughs) led into them making whatever happened to baby jane okay because you know we've talked about this in the show before we um i can't speak for you but i know for myself i'm really big on on dramatized movies based on real people specifically if they're involved in entertainment it doesn't have to just be film but musicians and plays and everything so like this played right into my into my sweet spot Um, (laughs) but then i'm also watching another show on on hulu from fx which is where ryan murphy and brad falchek seem to do most of their bidding right um that i thought they had produced but it's not it's called uh fossey verdon it's about uh, bob fossey and gwen verdon okay and their their relationship with each other and it's funny and it kind of led into an episode i want to do for a future episode because Amanda loves the movie Cabaret, and I've okay. never seen it, and okay. Bob Fosse directed it. And I was like, oh, shit. I, I feel like I'm watching this show, and I'm loving it. I feel like I should see mo- something besides Some Like It Hot. That's the only movie I've seen by Bob Fosse. Okay. I love it, though. <laughs> so it was a long way of saying that I, we need to do a Cabaret episode for I, Amanda. I'm totally down. Um, just to for completionist purposes, the, the name of the lead actor that I was trying to come up with is Ben Platt. Ben Platt. That name sounds familiar. Um, he's up. he's released an album now, and um, he's done some like actual TV movie acting. Um, he has a killer voice. Oh, he does. Um, there are two songs that he really sings in the series that blew me away. One is um, "River." Okay. God, how's the chorus go? Um, Cry a river that I could skate away on. Oh, okay. Um, um, they played it at I, Christmas I, time, even though it isn't a Christmas song, just because it involves ice skating. Um, that makes sense. And then um, a Billy Joel tune that he sings towards the end of the series. Um, Vienna. Vienna waits for you. Hmm. When you're gonna realize. I feel Vienna like if, if I heard it, I'd 
feel like I'd probably know yeah. it. The, those performances just blew me away and, and like reminded me how good like Billy Joel is and how I haven't listened to him in forever. So this I'm, I'm looking up the show you're telling me about the politician and it reminds me of like a darker version of Election. Okay, I haven't seen, seen Election, no. I think you'd love Election. Yeah. Well, I think we have our next two episodes. Right, we have yeah. Election and we have uh, Cabaret. <laughs> Taking notes. Yeah. So uh, I, I I thought of something fun to do just this second, and okay. um, uh, and it's just going to extend our preamble even further. But you know that's the power of editing. I can cut it down if I right. choose to. Um, so I've I've been thinking it's like it'd be fun for people who are listening to a little bit to get to know us because we talk about our we talk our, we bring shit up as we as we talk. Uh, but I thought every so often it'd be fun to just to ask each other like a movie question before we actually get started. Okay. So I thought of one just now. Um, that uh, so I've talked about in the show before how the first DVD that I ever got like was given um, was Star Wars Episode Two in full screen because that that was what you did <laughs> right. then because you yep. you know you didn't know about widescreen anything when you're a kid. Um, but then I was thinking, I was like, what was the first DVD I ever bought for myself? Nice. And I know what it is. And I'm curious okay. if you know what the first DVD you ever bought for yourself. Was. I do. All I right. Do. do you want to start or should I? Um, I'll start. Um, so I believe it was 2001, maybe 2002. Um, I had a very robust VHS collection, so I was a little hesitant to make the switch over to DVDs. Um, mm-hmm. I was also a college student. I didn't have a lot of money. Um, but I, I think one Christmas I got a decent amount of money in, in gift. And I was thinking that maybe this is the time to go get a DVD player. And I went to Best Buy, I think, and um, ended up buying like a three disc changer. That, that You know, it was this giant machine that I was so excited about. And I bought three DVDs that day. What'd you buy? Clerks. Okay. Um, a, a DVD that was essentially just clips from horror movies, but with like trivia over it. So it was, n- none of it was the full movie. It was I like, know which DVD you're talking about. <laughs> I don't, can't remember what the title is, but I remember it being like, it was like a red cover and it had like all like the, the horror movie, like killers on right yeah it was i remember that they were trying to take advantage of like dvd special features as a separate product yeah um bought that coming this fall on dvd and video boogeyman the ultimate killer compilation the best of freddy jason chucky michael myers pinhead leatherface and more Get ready to face them all together for the first time in the most insane collection of inhuman, grotesque, demonic, psychotic monsters ever to appear on film. Boogeyman, own the madness. Um, And then the Peanuts Holiday Collection. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Uh, Halloween, Great great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, um, Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, and uh, Charlie... um, is it Charlie Brown Christmas? Yeah, there's Charlie Brown Christmas. There's because there's a it's Christmas time Charlie Brown that's different. It's just not nearly as good. Yeah, I always still watch it every Christmas, so, you know, as a companion piece. But so the first DVD I ever bought for myself, and I need to preface the fact that 
I was 12 years old when this <laughs> came out. It was 2002. I was a big fan of, and oh, this, I also need to, to, to jump back before I even reveal what it is. Like the person who's in this movie was a huge fucking deal in the late 90s, early 2000s. <laughs> in my defense. <laughs> in my defense. Uh, my, the first movie I ever bought was the Crocodile Hunter Collision Course. Ooh. The Crocodile Hunter movie. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> G'day, I'm Steve Irwin. You might know me as the Crocodile Hunter. Have a look at this little beauty, will ya? This is an African lion. But I'm in no danger. He's become a Hollywood lion. He's been sitting in this MGM logo for 77 years. Tough job, mate. Of course, in my new movie, The Crocodile Hunter Collision Course, we make this bloke look like a real pussycat. Now, the lion may be the apex predator in Africa, but in Australia, crocs rule! Everything about Collision Course is big. Real big. But there's one big problem. It's you, mate. He's too tame. Come on, get out of there, you little devil. Crikey. Now that's more like it. Ooh, steady, mate, steady. So it wasn't like a Crocodile Hunter documentary, and I loved the Crocodile Hunter. I used to pretend, like, at night, like, would pretend to be the Crocodile Hunter <laughs> when I was a kid and, like... Like, would pretend my, my pillow was, like, a crocodile and shit. <laughs> um, and I remember, like, the crocodile... Like, this was, like... I thought it was, like, oh, shit, they made a Crocodile Hunter movie? It's not just one of his documentaries? <laughs> and uh, it's 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 it was really bad. Even... I knew it then. It's, like, you know, the Crocodile Hunter was trying to relocate, like, a, a crocodile... Some secret crocodile... Like, crocodile who's on, like, some secret U.S. base and bad guys are chasing him. Realistically, what they did was they shot a bunch of Crocodile Hunter documentary footage and then shot a movie around it and intercut it all together. Nice. That's amazing. <laughs> that sounds so good. <laughs> it would be... It would... I, I would honestly rewatch it if, if we could find a way, and if for anyone listening who is techier than us, um, I will gladly rewatch this movie if you can find a way where me and Nick can do a live commentary on like where we can do a watch along for Patreon or something so that way we don't have to worry about rights or anything <laughs> if we could do a watch along for the Crocodile Hunter Collision Course I I would that that would be that would be fantastic <laughs> I'm in <laughs> So yeah uh, I was thinking about that I was like that was the first DVD I ever bought <laughs> crocodile hunter gets chased by the cia perfect note yeah. taken <laughs> yeah croc <laughs> you wrote it down i croc I, it. I abbreviated crocodile to crot so i wrote crot hunter collision course it's like uh, i don't think i even have that dvd anymore that but, is a shame <laughs> um I, I i owned it i i was probably I imagine uh, somewhere in you know Sydney, Australia, or someone was around. I was like, "Steve, we have big news! Cracky, what's that? Someone bought your movie. <laughs> Some kid in Wisconsin bought a copy. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, yeah. 
So I guess that that that's our that's our f- first installment of movie questions or, or, or something like that. So <laughs> yeah, I loved it. <laughs> Is there anything else, Nick, before we get to the movie? No, I think we Is there anything else before we get to the movie? Episode, uh, that's been a good one, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, let me take a sip of coffee. I I already drank all mine. During our preamble, I'm oh, I this is this is my second cup. I drank my first cup waiting for you. <laughs> All right, let me read my intro. Warning: This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers, and with me, as always, is a perf- is a person I've often said is my lucky star. Nick Richards. Was a little, I couldn't tell if that was a delay or if you were just, like, soaking it in. I was so... T- well, I, it was probably a combination of the both, because uh, Stipe uh, stuttered a little bit while you were <laughs> leading up to it. But, anyways, on today's episode, we'll be talking about another sci-fi horror film that Nick has accidentally overlooked Ridley <laughs> Scott's Alien. The year is 2122, and the star freighter Nostromo is returning to Earth to unload its cargo. The entire crew is in stasis until they arrive to Earth, but are unexpectedly awoken before they arrive as they've received a distress signal. The ship's computer system, Mother, has awakened them, and its company policy is to inspect any distress signals along the way. The crew is unsure if this move is wise, but since they forfeit their pay if they go against orders, they reluctantly agree and investigate the moon from which the signal is originating. A small crew finds a derelict alien ship, only to find eggs have been laid within. When one of the officers, Kane, gets too close to one of the eggs, a creature springs out and latches itself to his helmet. During the commotion, Officer Ripley was able to decipher the distress signal. It was actually a warning. And now the crew must get Kane back to the ship to figure out what is attached to his face. Alien was written by screenwriter Dan O'Banion, who was no stranger to the world of science fiction, having written the script for John Carpenter's first feature film, Dark Star, and was also hired to write the script for Alejandro Jodorowsky's unproduced adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. O'Bannon wanted to make a horror film set in space with an alien that looked real. He was obsessed with the idea of a crew being trapped with said alien. Story has it Fox originally had no interest in producing anything sci-fi related, but after Star Wars became a juggernaut, wanted to produce something fast, and the only script sitting on their desk that could capitalize off the success of Star Wars was Alien. Originally slated to direct was genre filmmaker and producer Walter Hill, best known for movies such as The Warriors, but with him not being comfortable with doing all these special effects that the movie required, he chose a young filmmaker whose first film really impressed him, Ridley Scott. Alien was a relative box office success and was mixed, but was mixed with critics. Hot critics Siskel and Ebert felt the film was nothing more than a haunted house set in space. And my boy Leonard Malton originally gave the film a very poor review because it scared the hell out of him. But later on, after seeing the director's cut, he reassessed. Alien would, however, go on to win the Oscar for Best Visual Effects. As mentioned before, Alien was directed by Ridley Scott and written by Daniel Banyan. 
and was scored by one of my all-time favorite composers, Jerry Goldsmith, who I think is extremely underrated. The film stars Tom Skerritt, Veronica Cartwright, John Hurt, Ian Holm, Yafet Koto, D- Harry Dean Stanton, and a then relatively unknown Sigourney Weaver as the hero of the film, Ripley. Roll the trailer! Trailer, trailer, trailer! <laughs> Where's Earth? Seems we have intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. Human. Unknown. Can you see this? I've never seen anything like it. Holy shit, that was a long one. That was good. I felt it. Yeah. Down in my core. Thank you. Thank you. I was, I was trying to be concise. Yeah. So. Um, I had also, um, I had I was streaming it um, from my phone, and a lot of times, like, it'll show trivia and shit on your phone as you're streaming it. So I had actually talked. You watched them. Alien on your phone. That seems sad. <laughs> I, no, I watched it on TV, but streamed from my phone. Oh, oh, okay. I always, like, my phone is essentially you my cast remote it, control. You cast yeah, it, too. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I do everything through casting, for the most part. Gotcha. Um, so the phone's showing trivia while you're watching the shit up on the screen. Um, and I had read the bit about, like, um, how the screenwriter had, had written Dark Star and was really disappointed with, like, the beach ball, which I haven't seen. Um, but, like, the beach ball-esque um alien from that and how it didn't look real to mm-hmm. him and so he was really disappointed so that's when he like wrote alien to try and remedy that <laughs> issue yeah. that he had yeah it's it's kind of interesting and like he, he he for the most part has pretty um good things to say about working of john carpenter and working on on dark star because it, it was made it was a student film essentially it was made when they're all at usc but yeah he did not like the the alien and i think part of it is and don't quote me on this but i believe john carpenter and dan o'banion both saw the film a little bit differently i think dan o'banion wanted it to be a little more serious uh, john carpenter saw it a little more as a comedy and they were just sure just slightly different visions that weren't syncing up yeah, yeah, and like, it's a shame that Daniel Banyan didn't write to be a comedy because he he can he's shown that he can write comedy. He wrote and directed Return of the Living Dead, so he can do it very well. Um, but you know, yeah, they just didn't see it the same way. Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so Nick, tell tell us the story of how you missed Alien, or uh, um, and then um, what you thought of it. Um. I think as a kid, it was darker than not. I I I recognized that it was a darker film, both literally and figuratively. Yeah. Um, 
And that's not to say that I was afraid to watch it. It was more like what what little I had seen of it. The you know you growing up you saw the the action figures of the alien and you know as, it's a scary alien. Like it just didn't appeal to me to be honest. Like I wasn't scared of it mm-hmm. from, but nothing about it drew me in and said Nick you have to see this. Um, I get that. I get that. I had a similar experience, but I'll tell you my experience after you talk about yours. Okay. So, and and again, this is, it's not so much that I was actively thinking, oh, there's no reason for me to see that. It's just that in the sea of, of media and storytelling, you get pulled into things and that's where your attention goes. So this one just didn't pull me in enough to like go, you know, you should really take the time to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it wasn't something that my circle of friends talked about really that much to make me feel like I was missing out on something. Um, it just wasn't really on my radar. Yeah. And actually, I had a similar experience. Um, I feel like Alien was always a movie I had heard about. And even before Alien versus Predator was a thing, it was always talked about in a similar vein to that of Predator. And the first time I saw Predator, I wasn't that impressed with it. It's still not my favorite, but I wasn't super impressed with it. So I was like, oh, I'm probably not going to like Alien. I also um, have not seen Predator. <laughs> well, we'll have to remedy that at some point. Uh, though I think Alien's a better film. Um, but I, funny enough, I hadn't seen Alien until I was in college. And remember episodes episodes ago, I talked about like my, my aversion to science fiction for the for the longest time. Because right. it just felt like it was lab, it was, it was lab coat porn. <laughs> People, white guys in lab coats explaining shit to you. That's what I, because that, you know, that was all the 50s sci-fi. Right. So that's totally. what I just assumed all sci-fi was. <laughs> um, it wasn't until late high school th- through college that sci-fi started to appeal to me more. And a big part of that was seeing The Thing. Because I had always heard that that was considered a sci-fi horror film. And I was like, well, I like horror films, so maybe this will appeal to me. And then in college, seeing Alien. Um, a professor of ours, uh, she did a uh, genre film class. Um, and would do weekly screenings and allowed us to invite whoever we wanted to come watch it. And we, I got to see Alien in class. Like, it wasn't on, and it wasn't just on like a little dinky TV. We went to a fucking film school, so it was on a projector <laughs> and everything. And it kind of blew me away because... Uh, it, it was one of those situations where, um, kind of like you, I didn't think it was going to appeal to me. And then uh, when I was, I don't want to say forced, but when a situation came and it's like, well, I'm, I'm going to see this movie now, I was really impressed. And it's like, oh, I feel like if I would have seen this prior, I would have been a huge fan of it. Uh, but yeah, something about it just didn't didn't strike with me. Uh, but, but then after I'd seen it, I became really, uh, really enamored with it. Kind of the same thing when I finally saw the thing. It's like I just became really enamored with it and kind of like obsessively wanted to learn more about it. So nice. And I'd say like my in in terms of you know first impressions after the first watch, um, I thought it was a really well made film. Um, I really respect the filmmaking. Um, I think the the acting and particularly the dialogue was really amazing. Um, and I could break down any element of this film and like have a discussion about why it's really well made. That being said, conceptually, I was satisfied by the film mm-hmm. to the point that like I didn't find myself going, oh, now I really want to watch 
aliens or the you know any of the i i totally would Mm -hmm. but i i don't feel i was pulled into the universe in a way that left me wanting more it it was a it was a great film and a great watch and i had a really good time and if i didn't find out that there were or if i didn't know that there were more alien movies i would have been perfectly satisfied I'm kind of in the same boat. Like, I want to see Aliens because um, James Cameron directed it, and I like I like James Cameron. Um, but let's see, I don't know if I necessarily want to continue on from. I probably will. I I, I totally would. I don't have any reason not to. Uh, I just feel like it's 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 kind of the similar way that I've um, that like I feel like Nightmare a movie like Nightmare on Elm Street, for example, would be considered one of the greatest horror films of all time if it didn't have sequels. <laughs> right it changes the the tone in that series bounces all over the damn place and then like it's it's it, people then misremember what the original is like same thing of actually the original evil dead people misremember what that movie is like same thing because it's campier than yeah. it actually was or even terminator yeah like uh, i feel like as much as i love terminator 2 people misremember the original terminator to be more like terminator 2 <laughs> and um or so, think um, they saw Terminator when, in fact, they only saw Terminator Two. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of been fun, like to to get some of these like weird late seventies through eighties like iconic sci fi films off of your yeah. your shameless. Like, I wouldn't have thought that we'd be doing episodes on Terminator, Alien, and even potentially Predator, but right. here we are. And then, like, there's something I still need to watch. I haven't seen the original First Blood, the the Rambo movie. Nor have I. I've, so it's like you know, that's what we. That's why we created this show, Nick, yeah. is to is to be able to get to a lot of this stuff. So your your original impression was you you really liked it. And funny enough, my first impression when I first saw it in college was, I guess I, I lied a little bit. I I wasn't say I was instantly like enamored and obsessed with it, but I was like, holy shit, that was way better than I would have thought it would be. <laughs> and then it was each subsequent viewing that it got better for me. It's like, oh shit, this is even better than the last time I had seen it. And it kind of just grows from there because like, what's even more impressive about the film is it's, you know, just, it's just shy of two hours, hour 55 minutes moves. It never feel oh, like yeah. it slows yep. down. Like it's, it's got fun. It's, 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 it's got phenomenal pacing in that it never feels slow, but it's not necessarily like a quick moving, you know, here, constant things are, it takes its time to breathe. It, it's the pacing is so in, intriguing yeah, because it's not moving super fast, but it doesn't feel slow. Um, something that I really appreciated kind of on that note is most films need exposition to some level. You, yeah. you need to explain what's happening. Sci-fi tends to need more. You know, the yeah, further removed yeah. you get from our world, the fewer assumptions you can make, the more they need to set up for you. Dune did that 100%. in a really heavy way, where it was like 90% exposition while, while they crossfaded <laughs> to people walking. And then, you were, and then you were still confused. I was like, wait, can we go back and can you re-explain that, please? <laughs> um, I think part of why the pacing felt so good is, and especially, this goes especially because it's a sci-fi film, all of the moments where heavy exposition is happening, they also put a lot of life into those scenes, into those moments. Yeah. So that so that the expo so that 
the exposition isn't the only thing happening at that moment so that you're aware obviously aware that it's exposition you're learning about the characters your your and and they do it really well with simple lines but that aren't cliche like even the bit in the towards the beginning and you mentioned this in your intro when they're when that distress signal first comes and they're woken up and they're talking about well we're we got to get paid for this actually looked at your contracts oh you know the the way that that scene played out i thought was really tactful really Mm -hmm. realistic Mm -hmm. like i could feel in those moments like i i consciously thought this i could i could feel the the scene that they didn't show of them signing up for the trip where they're signing these contracts and making these deals and thinking boy it's a long trip and it's going to take a lot of time but boy i'm going to be set really well when i get back and all all of that energy was in there because of the words they chose and how those actors portrayed mm-hmm. those lines. It was really, I was really impressed by that. Well, some of you may have figured out we're not home yet. We're only halfway there. What? Mother's interrupted the course of our journey. What? Yeah. She's programmed to do that should certain conditions arise. They have. Like what? Seems she has intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. She got us up to check it out. A transmission? Out here? Yeah. What kind of a transmission? Acoustical beacon that uh, repeats at intervals of 12 seconds. SOS? I don't know. Human? Unknown. The so what? <laughs> we are obligated under section well, I hate to bring this up, but uh, this is a commercial ship, not a rescue ship. Right. And it's not my contract to do this kind of duty. And what about the money? If you want to give me some money to do, I'd be happy to. Alright, let's go over the bonus situation. We never can talk, we, can we just talk about the bonus situation. Sorry, can I say something? Let's talk about the bonus situation. There is a clause in the contract which specifically states any systematized transmission indicating a possible intelligent origin must be investigated. I don't want to hear it. We don't know that it's intelligent. I want a moment party. Parker, will you just listen to the man? On penalty of total forfeiture of shares. You got that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going in. Yeah, we're going in. Yeah, and then, like, um, I, I was talking to Amanda about, like, the realism of these scenes. Uh, but, for, like, at first, like, I will say, um, I have you, have you seen the, the show on YouTube, Trailers from Hell? You've talked about it, but I have not seen it. All right. Well, I I sometimes insert clips from it, and I, this will probably be a situation because um, I I was watching the trail the commentary on the trailer for Alien before I before it came on, and screenwriter Josh Olson one quotes uh, film critic Joe Bob Briggs and said, "You know, good horror film is when at any moment you think anyone any character can die." And then on top of that, he's like one of the genius parts of this film was the fact that Sigourney Weaver, who at the time was a relative unknown, going into the film not knowing anything about the movie because the trailer showed you nothing from the actual film, you just assumed that her character would die. Because she's the one person you didn't know. These are all character actors that we've all come to know, and you thought her character would die, and she didn't. Hi, this is Josh Olson. You're watching Trailers from Hell, and today I'm going to talk about a movie that you've seen. Uh, We're doing Alien today, but... Uh, I'm not going to talk about the film because you have seen it. Uh, You must have seen it. It made $100 trillion. They made 37 sequels. They're still making sequels to the damn thing. Uh, 
Um, it's an absolutely wonderful film. It's a classic horror film. It deserves to be. Uh, what I want to talk about, though, is uh, this first teaser trailer that came out for it in uh, 1979 uh, and what it was like to see this teaser without any idea of what the film was going to be and what it was like to live in a world uh, before the internet uh, where every surprise in a movie wasn't ruined for you. Um, because uh, to, to see Alien walking in cold was an incredible experience. The film still holds up today, uh, but audiences have a much better idea of what's coming. They know the, the classic scenes. Um, so uh, I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about the, the trailer you're about to see, which is an amazing little tone poem that doesn't feature a single frame from the movie, but just captured audiences. Uh, you knew after you saw this thing that where whatever else happened in your life, you were going to go see Alien, and that it was going to... The great drive-in movie critic Joe Bob Briggs used to have one guiding rule for the best horror films, and that is that anyone can get it at any time. No film has ever better followed that rule than Alien, I think. Ridley Scott did an amazing job of casting it. Because if you walked into this on opening day, all you saw were a bunch of character actors that you'd seen in tons of movies before. If you didn't know their names, you at least knew their faces. You know, Harry Dean Stanton, Tom Skerritt, Veronica Cartwright, Africano. The only character and actor you'd never seen before was a young actress named Sigourney Weaver, who was very pretty. Naturally, the one thing you knew going into Alien is that she was going to get it pretty early on. So it was pretty amazing as the film progressed to see everybody get chopped into pieces and she ends up being the sole survivor. And also the chestburster sequence, to walk in cold and have no idea what was coming. That movie just blew audiences' minds. I can't imagine that uh, you could make a movie today with a scene like that and not have your entire audience know what was coming six months in advance. And so there, there's these really interesting aspects they're doing with characters where not only do you have these really, what I say, realistic like characters and dialogue exchanges, but through the entire film, there's not really a lead character. Watching it, you'd assume, say, Tom Skerritt would be because he's the captain. It's kind of like, I call it the Scooby-Doo syndrome, where you assume Fred's the lead character because he's the one calling all the shots. <laughs> but, you know, the, we, we get a lot of time with them. You know, and I, my, some of my favorite scenes were just, and just, and just purely from a directorial and performance standpoint, where a lot of those, those, those dinner scenes where they're sitting around shooting the shit, totally. having a good time. Yep. And like Yafet Kodo's character, I don't remember what his name is in the movie, uh, uh, Parker, you know, like I know guys like him who are just like, he comes across very much as like, you know, if, if this was set contemporary time, he's a dude that works on like trucks and shit. <laughs> who's really good with his hands who probably is a little distrustful of this space exploration ship, but he knows, hey, I can get a lot, I paid a lot of money doing this, so right. I'm going to go and do it. And that's what I liked about it was you have all these interesting characters. They, they're not trying to overly sci-fi them and add all this technical jargon and like, we're going to Romulus 15. It just feels like if you took people today and threw them on a spaceship, that's what they, they felt right. like. They felt very timeless. And even just the design of everything felt like... The, if we ever got to space travel, this is what it would feel like, more so than, say, Star Trek or something like that. And so this is a very long, long-winded way of saying I really enjoyed that this this um, this ensemble-like cast and all the time we got to spend with them because we you got to learn a lot without them saying you know my backstory is I did this before <laughs> this. You got to get to know who they what they're like, who they are, and they're their position on ship like like 
the the character of Ash, the science officer, you could tell just by the way he interacted with everyone that without them saying it, that he's a new guy. He's not. He, he's a new guy to this and, crew. He's not as comfortable yeah, around everyone. Else. He, he's on the outside of this of the inner circle. You know something, and you, you said, find out later on why. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> something you said there about um, like uh, how the movie was marketed, and therefore not knowing who was going to die when, mm-hmm. uh, reminded me of something that I've long felt about the indie horror film, uh, The Cube. Yeah, we've well, talked about it. We were supposed to do an episode at some point. Oh, did we? Uh, yeah, so we're all... you have not seen the cube. Nope, and I, okay. we, we still need to do an episode of Ghostbusters. This one. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm, it's just because you're taking notes. I'm reminding you of all these. Um, <laughs> well, I'm gonna spoil something a little bit for you for the sake of this conversation. There's a good uh, chance I'll forget it, but continue. <laughs> the cube and Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah. get that down. Um, okay, so the 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 movie cover and poster is i i felt was very iconic in in on this film it was this kind of uh, monochromatic image i think it has like an orangish yellow color to it of just this guy kind of crawling with this panicked look on his face yeah and so going into that film that's all that was all i had to base my expectations on and the mm-hmm. film opens with him and he dies within the first 5 minutes before you're even introduced to any other characters oh interesting so it's like okay here's everything you know about the film 5 minutes in we take that away from you yeah. so it completely cleansed your palette of expectations it's, you had no idea what to think of this film it's genius like i actually watched the teaser trailer because this movie only had a teaser trailer it didn't have like in the year 2020 21 right. 22 <laughs> the team the new it's like it didn't have any of that you just it was going over the surface of what looked to be a planet and it was just bringing up the title alien it's right. it was very simple it was like 30 seconds long gave you nothing that and then what actually Oh, continue. Uh, uh, well, I was just thinking about both of our respective reactions to this film younger before we had seen it. And it seems like they had a really minimalist marketing campaign from what little we're able to pick up via mm-hmm. this conversation. Like, I wonder if that led to our and and then again others lack of initial interest in it because there wasn't that much to like it seems like they weren't really they intentionally were not giving out enough to really draw people in and and that could be but like uh one thing that i thought was interesting is in that trailers from hell and back when i first talked about it i'll probably insert the clip of it josh olsen talks about um uh how in a lot of ways that kind of worked if you think about having seen it in 1979, go in and know literally nothing about this movie, sure. it's even more shocking. Because he said if if they would make a cut a trailer for Alien now, the chest burster scene would be you'd know that scene. Right. You they would show it in the trailer. It's one of the things they're going to get you to come see the movie for. Uh, and I can only imagine how shocking that scene is, not knowing it's coming. Right. The, the creature dangling behind them is mm-hmm. you know as they're looking for the cat like you would have already known that all that was coming up yeah. four minutes is is the length of time that the alien is actually seen in this movie right 
the movie was pitched as Jaws in space, and it, it's very truthful in that way. Like, you have one of the most iconic creature designs of all time, and he's 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 very seldomly seen. It's this this sense of the un. I don't even want to say the unknown because the the sense of the known, you know, there's something around here. You just don't know what he looks like. Right. It goes back to the whole Hitchcock idea of suspense. I've told you that story, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Well, knowing the bomb is under the table makes the scene more intriguing than as opposed to something just jumping out at you. It's like, oh shit, where'd that come from? Yeah. Yep. Um, well, I guess that's uh, a moment to uh, transition into talking about the creature designs yeah given that it is such a prominent part of how this film got made hr geiger designed those yeah um i found the face hugger alien much um what's the phrase i'm looking for um better realized not okay. not not from a base well even from a concept that's fascinating um but you actually see this one in the light you spend time with it as they're analyzing it and deciding where to cut it, it looks so real it looks so real so disgusting in such a natural way it was perfect the way that the tail was kind of <laughs> wrapping around the neck as it was pulsing on the face yeah, i think it was a really smart move to be hiding the full-sized alien the whole time Mm -hmm. because when you did see it on today's screens that it looked a bit like a dude in a suit see i didn't i didn't feel that way i guess particularly at the end when it's you're you actually finally see the whole thing um, I, I guess that's fair. That's fair. I, I feel like when they show space. I, that, okay, that's fair. That's one hundred percent fair. <laughs> I feel like though that through most of the movie they did a really good job of hiding it. I I agree. Hiding and I the think, man in the suit. Like I think, look. had they shown the alien more, then it wouldn't have been as effective because you would have seen it in the way that you saw it when it was floating in space and getting, yeah. you know, burned up in the engine. And it would have looked more like a person in a suit. Yeah, I just, so the like, fact I, that they showed so little was really smart. The one of the images that just sticks out with me is like when, like one of the first times we see him, and he, and he like, for lack of a term, snarls or smiles or whatever, and like his mouth is just like a fucking faucet. And it's like, oh, it's just so uh, creepy. And it's 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 fascinating to me what you're we were talking about the face hugger and how well realized that was because it, it really much is. And then like there's this, this nice progressive build where like oh that little thing that's that's not, that can't be too hard to fucking kill. Why is this such a big problem? But like when they're operating on it later on and it's it looks so gross and real. I'm so f- constantly fascinated how all the aliens in this film can look so. I keep saying the word real so so realistic and yet the one of the times that we got like a fake severed head from a human it looked terrible oh yeah <laughs> when like the shot where they're like propping his head yep. up 
Amanda's the first like, one to point it out. And it's, uh, it reminded me of uh, in Terminator when he's like adjusting the eye on the fake head and <laughs> yes. then it cuts and it's like, oh, all of a sudden it's real again. But at the same time, I, I'd still rather take like slightly off looking practical effects than just like, ah, oh, CGI, CGI in a head or something totally, like that. Totally, yeah. yeah. I, like it, it wasn't ever something in either of those, Alien or Terminator, that was like, oh, please, you couldn't have done like... I I took it completely in context of the time and appreciated it for what it was and you know you you need viewers need to be able to appreciate that that was a stepping stone to get where we are today. You know, you can't like retroactively 100%. say no, it should have been better when those were the pioneers who were inspiring the people that developed the next levels of this. Yeah. And I, I do agree with you though. Like the 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 final time you could see the alien, or one of the the last couple times, it's not doesn't do the alien truly any favors. <laughs> um, but consider, I'm sure this movie didn't have a super huge buzz budget, not least you know since um, they were trying to make it on the cheap. <laughs> it was still all things considered pretty fucking good. Oh, yeah. um, and then like still the chestburster scene is so. It's still pretty shocking now. All oh, considered. absolutely. Um, it, it's the, it's not just the fear of something getting you right. That mm-hmm. like, this film has that most horror movies, most slasher films that like the thing is stalking you. Kind of, like that's one kind of fear. Another fear of something mm-hmm. being inside you is a whole different type of fear. So the fact that this film is playing on both of those, um, as well as others, is, you know, it it brings out another reason for you to jump in a different way and throw you off guard. Uh, Oh, I didn't realize I had to be afraid of that too. Yeah, (laughs) and from what I've heard, and it's just, you know, could just be rumor and hearsay, is that while shooting the chestburster scene, not everyone on set was told what was going to happen. <laughs> so, like, I, I, the story I've heard was, um, I'm trying to remember the actor's name at the moment, Veronica Cartwright, who played the only other female in the movie. Yeah. Uh, her reaction was legitimate because she didn't know she was especially going to get sprayed in the face. <laughs> that's so Like, cruel. that's the story I've heard. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's why their reactions are so, um, so honest. Yeah. So, I was reading a ranker list. One thing I wanted to talk about, too. I, I oh, was continue. Reading, this is quick. I, I was reading a ranker list yesterday of, like, uh, scene screw-ups that ended up staying in the, the final film. Yeah. And and one of them that that kind of reminded me of was, it, uh, again, a film I haven't seen, uh, Django Unchained. Is no, you title? have not seen that. Yeah, seen that. okay. When Leonardo DiCaprio likes apparently like smashes a glass mm-hmm. and cuts his hand and then he like that none of that was scripted and when he accidentally cut his hand on it he just like ran with it through the whole scene even though he had sliced his hand open. There was another one actually in a Quentin Tarantino film in his, in, his, uh, in The Hateful Eight where there's a scene where a character's playing a, a song on a guitar. And uh, Kurt Russell's listening and listening and everything, and it's it's a song about uh, about a, a person getting killed, like a Hank. So I don't want to go into the whole scene, but Kurt Russell gets pissed, grabs the guitar, and breaks it against a wall. That was a guitar borrowed from a museum. 
and he didn't know that, and he broke the shit out of the guitar. <laughs> Oopsie. <laughs> I love finding out like when things like that happen in a film. Like there's one in Heather's too, where there's that scene where they're cow tipping and the cow gets pushed over and they all get smacked in the face with mud. You can see uh, um, Winona Ryder about to start laughing and they do a quick cut before she <laughs> <Right>. laughs. <laughs> so I love shit like that. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about because I'm always a big fan of this. Being a younger person, I don't always like seeing young people in movies because they usually get on my nerves. Um, I like this movie quite a bit as well because it's for lack of a term i call it adult horror where none of these people are young like i've looked actually i found their ages on wikipedia tom scarrett the captain was 46 john hurt was 39 holmes was 48 harry dean stanton was 53 and yafet koda was 42 the youngest two people were veronica cartwright at 30 and sigourney weaver at 29 so like i just i like seen a i've like seen adults in movies what times right it's, it's like i feel like i as much as i like slasher films and such like that i feel like we've gotten to a point where i've seen enough teenagers in movies i want to get i want i want more adults in movies <laughs> and like i saw this movie when i was relatively young i saw it in college and it seeing adults on screen didn't like look oh i don't want to watch this piece of shit like i don't know like it's I feel like it, this is a small little thought, but I, just when I got to see their ages, I, I wish we got more of this. Yeah. Because, like, I, I felt like these characters were so relatable. Like, I, I absolutely love the, the the dynamic between uh, Yafet Koto's character Parker and Harry Dean Stanton character's character Brett. Like, they're just, it's, they seem like they've been friends for a while. Right. They are very curmudgeon and <laughs> they know they're good at their job, and they're not going to stop telling you about how fucking good they are right <laughs> right <laughs> and then like i also love the scene later on where like um where uh ripley's like well i'm gonna come down there and like what the fuck is she gonna do like <laughs> and uh, i love that they're they're constantly showing her throwing her disrespect but it's never once because she's a woman just because they probably don't respect anyone who's above right. them. They think they're all idiots <laughs> right like i just love that when they're like she's trying to yell over the steam and they're like we can't hear you and as soon as she walks away they just turn it they off turn it off <laughs> It was like, I know people like this. I work with people like this who are this level of just douchebaggery, but in a very goofingly charming way. Yeah. And uh, I was talking before about how you got to know everything you had to know about these characters in this film. And there was a, a screenshot that Amanda took because we thought it was so fucking funny. It was later on when Ripley's like wrestling with Ash and before his big reveal that, oh shit, he's a robot. Right. Um, He's like freaking out, and she's got Yafet Koto's got him held down. And if you see in the background, I assume it's like Yafet Koto's uh, oh, little all the magazine it's, cutouts all it's over the wall. It's nothing but magazine cutouts of women, yep. and then one of eggs. <laughs> I didn't catch the eggs. And I'm just sitting there thinking, like, I just imagine he's like, man, you know what? I miss eggs, <laughs> right? Because he's been nothing but complaining about how bad the food is on the ship, <laughs> and then like, because everything he's talking about is either women. Or food. And on his wall, is there's only two articles of food that I saw. It was eggs, and then there's a quick cutaway of like a cherry tort. That's amazing. And I was like, this is everything you have to know about this character is here on the screen. You don't have to hear him talk about how all the women he slept with. He kind of right. has that line about like there's something else he wants to eat. But like it, it, the characters are so fully realized without being over the top. Right. So... Uh, that's amazing i just i i 
Plus, I, I love that actor, so I'll, I'll just I I I I I, I, I watch, my eye always goes to him whenever he's in a movie. <laughs> he's in a movie I absolutely love called Blue Collar that I'd love to show you at some point. Okay, I'll add it to my running list here. It, it, it was written by the written and directed by the screenwriter of Taxi Driver. It stars oh, Richard nice. Pryor, uh, Harvey Keitel, and Yafet Koto. Okay, awesome. All right. So what else is on your what what else is on your uh, notes, Nick? Jiminy Christmas. Oh, uh, some. Um, I, I always like pointing out the uh, foreshadowing and and how it's written. So the very first lines in the film stood out to me um, when uh, John Hurt says, "I feel dead." He's like, "Yo, mm-hmm. you know what? Something. You look dead." And yeah. he was the first one to die. <laughs> that was, well, and then um, there and then was the a line with. There was another piece of foreshadowing that I remember was being really strong. Around, I'm curious if it's on your but, list. Uh, that when the captain was just starting to go through the, what the ventilation system or whatever, and um, he, I believe he's talking to Ripplin and. They're doing this process of like, you know, opening the doors, closing the doors. He'll let them know when it's, and he mm-hmm. goes real, real kind of somber. I'm moving on. Oh, I didn't catch that one. And it, it stood, he says it in other ways that seems more like it made sense. But then he says to Ripley in, in this kind of slow, like, I'm moving on. And it's right before he dies too. Mm-hmm. I feel like there was one between Ripley and like Yafet Koto when they were like fucking around down in the bowels of the ship where she like he says something stupid and she says something along the lines like that will be one of the last things you say or some shit okay. like I feel like there was one that was pretty on the nose as well. I mean definitely the way that I the... missed the one with the captain. Okay. There's definitely that scene where there's the three of them and the the cat runs off and they're like, All right, we'll go get that cat and he's like Shit, I'm not gonna survive this. Am I? And that just the look on his face, and and them like, and then they just kind of stand there after he leaves, like, all right, well, I love that they just said like, there's a there's a there's a creature on this on this spaceship that's taking us all out. The cat ran off. Well, go get him. Well, why don't you guys go as a group? Right. And I'm like, like we'll, we'll stand here and wait for you. Uh, and the justification that like. Oh, he'll screw up our our tracking instrument. We don't want that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I also something else that I wondered was the cat in suspended animation, or while they were all asleep, was we, the cat? Me and just Amanda were talking around? about that too. <laughs> like a tiny little I don't pod. Know. When, like and then like when they did on the escape pod, she puts the cat in one of those chambers. Yeah. Um, so you would assume, but who knows? yeah, I, I, I've been I've been wondering that too, and I was like, I want to know like, how'd you guys get the cat? Did you smuggle the cat on? Right. Was it, I'm sure there's regulations against having an animal on. The uh, there ship. certainly was in the show Red Dwarf. That's why uh, Lister got put into suspended animation for having a cat on board, and then it ends up evolving into like cat-like people <laughs> that were oh, living shit. in the. And it's amazing, and someday you have to actually watch that show. I'm sure I will. I've heard good um, things about it. The The other thing that I found really interesting was the amount of smoking that they did on the spaceship. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> it reminded me of the movie Thank You for Smoking. Have mm-hmm. you seen that? Uh, a long time ago, but yes, I have seen it's it. It's so what? good. There's, uh, <laughs> they're talking about uh, cigarettes as product placement. 
And they're like, you know, it's yeah. like, we don't have those heroes anymore smoking and, you know, we need we need to get that back. And so they're talking about inserting it into this sci-fi outer space film. And they're like, wouldn't that, like, blow everything up all the time? And they're like, <laughs> oh, we, that's an easy fix. We just, you know, have a line about it's a good thing we invented the such and such machine that <laughs> that allows yeah, us yeah. to do this. Mr. Neal is here to see if we can't get cigarettes into the hands of somebody other than the usual Ravs. Ravs. Russians, Arabs, and villains. Oh, well, then, yes, I guess that is why I'm here. Good. I think we can help. Jeff invented product placement. I feel I have to ask, uh, are you concerned at all about the, um, about the health element? I'm not a doctor. I'm a facilitator. I bring creative people together. Whatever information there is exists. It's out there. People will decide for themselves and should. It's not my role to decide for them. It'd be morally presumptuous. I could learn a lot from this man. So what we need is a smoking role model, a real winner. Indiana Jones meets Jerry Maguire. Right, on two packs a day. Only he can't live in contemporary society. Why not? The health issue is way too prevalent. People would constantly be asking the character why he's smoking. And that should go unsaid. How do you feel about the future? The future? Yeah, after the health thing's blown over. A world where smokers and non-smokers live together in perfect harmony. Sony has a futuristic sci-fi movie they're looking to make. Message from Sector 6. All takes place in a space station. They're actively looking for some co-financing. So cigarettes in space. It's the final frontier, Nick. Yeah, but wouldn't they blow up in an all-oxygen environment? Probably. But it's an easy fix. One line of dialogue. Thank God we invented the, you know, whatever device. Brad Pitt. Catherine Zeta-Jones. They've just finished ravishing each other's bodies for the first time. They lie naked, suspended in air underneath the heavens. Pitt lights up. He starts blowing smoke rings all around Catherine's naked, flawless body as the galaxies go whizzing by over the glass-domed ceiling. Now tell me that doesn't work for you. I'd see that movie. I'd buy the goddamn DVD. And, you know, if the Academy didn't send them to me for free. <laughs> I forgot about that scene. <laughs> Only thing I kept thinking of was when every time they had a, 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 a eating scene, which there was plenty of them, um, I kept thinking, "Is like, are they just eating assorted types of cereal?" <laughs> it just seemed like that's the only food they had was assorted types of cereal and maybe a pasta salad. <laughs> I would love to go back to that film. I'm sure I would appreciate it more today than I did, and I really appreciated it when I saw it. <laughs> well, the the food scene I was talking about was is it was an alien. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. It's, Though I would like to go back to thank you for smoking as well at some point. I remember really liking it. I saw it on IFC for the first time. Okay. Um, um, yes, okay. A cereals? No no cherry torts or eggs? Yeah, I just feel like everything they're eating is like cereals. And then it looks like before John Hurt dies, it looks like he, he's scooping like some pasta salad. Yeah, I, I, I thought they might have been mashed potatoes. Yeah, so I was like, I don't know. I, I wrote an article that is still unpublished. No one seems to want to do it um, about the importance of food in cinema and how it, how it defines your character. And this this movie's not a great example of it, but I uh, maybe a little bit for Parker's character. But uh, uh, I I whenever there's food on screen, not only just because I'm a fat guy, but then I'm always like, ooh, what are they eating? And like, I'm just I'm very invested in food when people have it on screens. Rain and I. Um oftentimes will be really distracted by the beautiful like home architecture at times where we really should like oh my god look at those built-ins oh did you see that stained glass window oh it's gorgeous 
yeah me uh me and amanda do that sometimes too like we're just we're 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 focused on the wrong things sometimes in the scene but like i i i also love that like yeah. i um amanda said that if whenever i make another film she wants to do the set design because she just thinks awesome. it's so fun to tell a story yeah through all these little things it's particularly bad when we're doing that when we're watching like haunted house films like amityville horror yeah uh, you know like the house is the problem and we're like oh yep. what a steal oh i'd totally live with that poltergeist <laughs> yeah. me amanda does that sometimes too or, or if we are watching a haunted film her usual go-to is like well burn it and i think it was like amityville horror that we watched and he tried burning it and the fire went out and she goes shit <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Amanda, you can't just solve all your problems with fire. <laughs> you can solve most of them, but not all of them. Yeah, most of them. Oh, shit, that's funny. Um, <laughs> uh, the other thing that I picked up, and I'd need to watch it. At, oh, actually, before I get into that, um, there was a really minimal store on this it was minimal but it was really fucking effective yeah well and their use of sound design mm-hmm. i i think like took the place of a fuller store where they were yeah. using the sounds of of the wind on the moon and the kind of the the hissing in in the spaceship and all that as this kind of like replacement store but yeah and that, I, I was really like it gave it a really ominous feel and on top of that, like I was, I wanted to just talk about like Jerry Goldsmith's score a little bit because what I loved about it is, so I I think Jerry Goldsmith is is accomplished as he was, and, and I and I will read off some of his his titles here in a little bit, um, is I think he's very underrated as much as he's done, because he doesn't get as much credit as say someone like John Williams who has done bigger films though I think John I think Jerry Goldsmith's scores are more interesting okay. but what I thought he was really genius about the way he scored this film is he didn't score it like a traditional horror film he didn't he didn't score it like a traditional sci-fi film either he had these nice sweeping moments these almost like playful like fantasy moments and they would get tense when they needed to but I I love that he didn't seem to be playing into certain genre tropes. And he knows the genre tropes because he scored four fucking Star Trek films. <laughs> you know, so he knows these scores. He, he scored The Omen, so he knows the horror movie side of things. Um, but I, I I really love the, the score work he did in this film. And I found myself uh, uh, pleasantly surprised with it. And I felt like there was the perfect amount of score yeah like it was subtle it played its effect it put it it did what it was supposed to do very fucking well i tend to get turned off in a way that i don't think most people do when when stores are are bigger you know i Mm -hmm. i prefer minimal i prefer simpler um versus the big orchestral over the top like um you kind of get like pulled into what the music's trying to have you feel Mm -hmm. um which i i i understand the importance of store you know Mm -hmm. for that purpose but um i like when it is a piece of a broader thing versus like trying to give you the step-by-steps of what to feel 
and when they're more over the top i think it tends to be more like you know the electric slide where we're going to give you the dance instructions don't worry old white people like we'll tell you exactly what to do yeah yeah but like oh as i said i was going to do just a moment because like i said john williams is always credited to be one of the you know for a lot of people one of the best american composers um and he's great don't get me wrong but like uh just looking at some of what jerry goldsmith did he scored uh the twilight zone the original tv show and the movie from the 80s he did the the theme song from the man from uncle so he's been working since the 50s he did uh he did gremlins he did Patton. he did the omen films he did four star trek films he did poltergeist the secret of nim psycho 2 the burbs mulan he's uh total recall he's done so much (laughs) music and his scores are unlike a lot of other a lot of his other contemporaries like i i appreciate that like i said times he will score things the opposite of how it should be right so yeah he did he did the theme song for star trek uh uh next generation oh Love it. <laughs> yeah, you're My a man. fan already. <laughs> as, as if the Twilight Zone theme wouldn't have already sold well, me he, on him. He didn't do the theme song from the Twilight oh, okay. Zone. That was Bernard but, Herman, but he okay. did the music in the episodes. Okay, still. Still love him. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So, Jerry Goldsmith, you the man. Um, and just and just because I, I always like to give examples of things, probably right about here I'll cut in some of his more interesting music from the movie. Nice. So another, you know, like I said in the beginning, I had to break down any element of this and talk about why it's great. So then the next bit would be use of light. Um, an extremely mm, dark film. Um, but it, it they always put the limited amount of light right where it needed to be. Um, mm-hmm. And between like the, the pilot lights of the flamethrowers you know, flickering on the faces or the, the warning lights being what's illuminating the space. It's certainly, there got to be a point where like all of the flashing was a little bit, you know, stroke inducing. A little bit. but <laughs> I, Ripley, like, a little bit, but. Um, the lighting I thought was all really effective. Also, not for only for the reasons you said, but like it just, it felt very much in the scene. I've talked about uh, audio before where there's diegetic and non-diegetic sound. There's scenes that's, that there are, there's audio that the characters are hearing and there's audio that the audience is hearing. Right, and I, right. I kind of equate it to a similar thing with lighting. All the lighting in this movie felt motivated by something. It, they it weren't necessarily like lighting it, things just so they, the way they look good. Absolutely. Yeah. And it did look good. And it's it, it's it looked great. And it's, this is a tough movie to light, too, because I'm sure those sets were really small. And, yeah, you can move things when you built the sets. But 
I'm sure this is not an easy movie to light. Right. You know, lighting and cinematography was never my forte when I was in film school. <laughs> so I have, I have a, 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 a huge respect for anyone that can paint with light. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And I also was love that this film was not afraid to be dark. It wasn't yes. afraid to pitch things in blackness. Yep. Um, I found the cuts really abrupt, but in a, in a successful way. Explain. Um, just the way that it would go. And some of this was with the sound design too. So when I, I felt it throughout the entire film, but in, when I first kind of became aware of it was when they were going from Ian Holm in the spaceship to the team down on the planet where it would be going Mm -hmm. from these, you know, medium, medium wide shots on Ian Holm with some, you know, relative, you'd hear some blips and bleeps from the ship, but um, relatively calm to these like ultra wide shots with them being really like down in the frame, like kind of pushing that rule of thirds, um, pushing them out of those, little areas of interest so that you're looking more out at things and the the whipping winds that are um happening and the timing of those cuts i found jarring but in a effective way okay um and go back and watch that scene again i'd love to get your your take on it too um what scene was it again i'm sorry um when they first go to the to the planet that the distress call gotcha. is coming okay. from. Um, That's my homework for this week. I have yeah. to rewatch that scene for Nick. <laughs> um, there, there was a really interesting book that I read on editing, and I won't be able to remember the, the guy that wrote it, but um, I believe the title of the book is In the Blink of an Eye. Yeah. And this editor realized as he was cutting he he observed that like there is there's this pocket where it feels right to cut away yeah and he realized that 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 time that it felt right was at the same time that people blink that the actors were blinking hmm and so like right before right on the blink like on the blink and he's he's kind of built this theory up about how we as humans use blinking as this like internal editing mechanism. It's when like the idea that you're currently in feels done and you're ready to start a new idea mm-hmm. or, or start or, or there's a shift in the conversation or you're done and now it's time for the other person to talk. But it's not right when the words end. There's this like hanging out period and then the blink comes and, and that that is when it always felt right to blink now or when to cut. Though then there's the idea of, okay, now you know the rule, so now let's figure out when it's right to break that rule. Yeah. When, so you, it, when you want it to hang out longer so that it feels more awkward, or when you want it to cut sooner so that it feels more rushed. So his, his theory, because like I've always felt that too, like well, in the editing process, like a couple frames can make a huge difference. Yeah. There'll be sometimes I'll be going between the edit, and it's like I'll go back a couple frames, I'll go forward a couple frames, and just kind of play with it and his you so you're saying his theory was that when the person in the edit itself blinks on the blink is 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 
when for the, kind of a rule of thumb, a great place to cut. When the actor's on the screen, blank. Interesting. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm curious if anyone else subscribes to that. Because uh, I always watch for, for little editing techniques and see how people do. But yeah, it's finding the 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 length of time to be with a scene or do it. Not even on a scene. How long does it just stay at a certain shot? <laughs> yeah. Is an art form in itself. Yeah. I've talked plenty about the the theory of that. Um, Brian De Palma has when it comes to making a scene where he says, you know, as a director, your job is more than just working with the actors. It is figuring out the best way to to lay out a scene and the best way to direct a scene. And he, he has said, and he's, you know, he's a pretty opinionated guy. He said, if you are a director and you have a scene and you can't theoretically shoot the entire scene in a master or you don't have a master interest enough to shoot that scene... You didn't figure out the scene. Sure. So you said too many directors are more uncomfortable just figuring out in the end. And everyone's got their own style. Right. You know, his his way is not the right way, not the wrong way to do it. But that's his opinion is, you know, lay it all out in the master. Be able to do everything. Watch the master and then figure out where you need your punch-ins from there. Because he doesn't, he's a, he doesn't believe in coverage. He, he'll shoot a master, maybe two close-ups and be done. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of the same, same thing there where you got to know how long to hold on these shots. Like, when do you cut into your close-up? If, if you, you know, when you have a character uh, that you want to do a punch-in on a close-up, when do you do it? And how long do you stay there? Or, like, some, like I said, some directors just, like, close-up after close-up after close-up after close-up. And yep. there's no rhythm to what they're, what they're shooting, you know. So, all of this tangent to go back and say that I think the, the pacing on this film... The cuts on this film is an example of effectively breaking that rule of when it feels right to cut. And I think, okay. it, yeah, and I think it was to yeah to the benefit of the film. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, when I watched this film, like I said, I just kind of became so enamored with it, rewatching it, that I wasn't paying attention to the edits. But I want to. I, th- I feel like very much like the way uh, like I've studied the movie Halloween. I feel like this is a movie that. A filmmaker can study. I feel yeah. like anyone who wants to to do visual storytelling, which is what filmmaking is, should study this film. You could say what you want that it, you know doesn't have as, it doesn't have a super in depth story and all this other stuff. But anyone who wants to make films can learn something from this Absolutely. from this movie. And uh, anyone who says otherwise is dumb. Is <laughs> <laughs> a is a big meanie face. <laughs> yeah, and they could go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, I'm glad. It's funny. Normally, you're not the one to pick out uh, music, uh, but you're the one who brought music to the table on this episode. And uh, editing, we usually kind of like we'll, we'll go back and forth. Who who notices it? I so. wonder if some of it isn't me trying to expand my film analysis as a result of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of it might be that. Some of it might be just that because this film did things so differently with lighting, with, mm-hmm. with score, that it actually stood out because it broke from the norm. Yeah. Or my expectations of the norm. It's probably some of both, but... I. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely had that realization too as I was taking notes. Um, and now back and some, to... And some of it oh. I think like... 
Oh, I was going to say, some of it, I think it's break from the norms, I feel like also come from the fact that other than pre- pretty much for the cast, this is a, a relatively young team doing this movie. So you have um, <clears throat> Ridley Scott, well, this is his second movie. Um, Dan O'Banion, this is like the second feature film that he has 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 written. Um, so you have your, your two biggest points of this film who are still relatively new. I think the cinematographer, this might be one of his first films as well that he was shooting. So other than the, the act, the actors, the producers and the, the composer, you, you have a pretty young team who's experimenting. Yeah. They're, they're eager to mix things up and, and still play around. Yeah, because like Walter Hill, who was one of the producers on this film, he was really big on on, on experimentation as well. You know, like uh, I talked about one of his first films, Hard Times, early on for a Mill Creek review, and then like I said, he did uh, The Warriors and a bunch of other like Forty Eight Hours, and he was never afraid to like try different things. Yeah, um, especially too because at the time sci-fi was uh, other than st- up until Star Wars, sci-fi wasn't a a, a big money maker, and George Lucas essentially just did sci-fi in his own way so i feel like the they were probably like well this is our chance to make something weird let's just fucking make it weird not even weird but like it's our chance to do something unique well and and you know you're kind of getting into that um the conversation now about um genre mashups right where star wars took sci-fi and and made a sci-fi western and then Alien took yeah. sci-fi and made the sci-fi horror film, um, and and what looking at at the the western genre through a sci-fi lens and looking at the horror genre through a sci-fi lens and how much that changes it and makes something new and um, it's interesting. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, I'm getting towards the end of my notes and now they're going to start getting more into the story stuff that, uh, I, <laughs> where I tend to live. Um, one Take, talk qu- about it. That's, 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 that's your forte, Nick. <laughs> one quick one is that I made a lot of comparisons to sunshine, um, as I was yeah, watching I this. And while I have no like evidence, uh, to, I wouldn't to be surprised. Sure, I wouldn't be surprised if Sunshine took a lot of inspiration from Alien. Whether it be Danny Boyle or Alex Garland, I'm sure one of them, if not both of them, love this movie. Yeah. Um, like I would not be surprised at all. Uh, so two other story notes that I really uh, would be interested to... The reason why I would go back to this movie and watch it multiple times would be to flesh out these two points. Okay. One is um, Ian Holmes' character... Uh, starts describing the respect that he has for this alien life form. Yeah. And he talks about how he describes it as the perfect organism because it's a survivor. It will survive at all costs. Mm-hmm. And I think by the end of the film, it's apparent that Sidorney Weaver's character, Ripley, is that... I think the story is really calling Ripley the perfect organism because she is the one that survived, that she mm-hmm. survived at all costs, um, even over this alien. So 
uh, going back to Ian Holmes' description and applying it to Ripley, I think would be interesting. And I think there's unpacking to do there. Um, the other element, and I believe they actually go into this from what little I know on the follow-up films, I think they go into this idea a lot more. Um, but the, the, um, they kind of start talking in this film about motherhood and, and the complications of a mother-child relationship, which mm -hmm. is first set up obviously with the computer's name. You know, it did the way that they talk to this overlord as mother instantly is like an interesting relationship that I want to learn more about. Like, it, yeah, there's this feel of like, mother, may I, mother, may I, and the ship's mm -hmm. not giving most people any information. Um, and so, like, immediately there, I want to like dissect the hell out of that concept. Um, and then one. Yeah. One thing, there might be nothing to this. I might be reading too much into it, but uh, the closeness of the lines felt intentional to me where the last thing Ripley says to the ship is um, when she tries to cancel the, the self-destruct countdown and it doesn't, she screams out, you bitch. She calls <laughs> mother, you bitch. <clears throat> and then when they're she gets to the escape ship she's flying away and she calls the alien son of a bitch you son of a bitch which then like i think reinforces the connection of the alien to mother which mm -hmm. also kind of represents this this unseen organization that uh is controlling this this ex expendable crew in its mind to like mm -hmm. get and care for this That's interesting this, i this i, I would have never put that together i would have <laughs> never put that together <laughs> This is where my brain goes while I'm watching a slasher that's, film. That's why I love doing this show with you, Nick, because my brain doesn't work in that way. Sometimes <laughs> I feel like I'm very much a uh, on-the-surface person, and you are definitely, you want to get underneath there. I I, I don't think, I, I would never describe it that way. I think you deep dive into places that I don't, and I I feel the same thing about you as we do this. Like I'm like, wow, you you know so much about all these things, and you fascinated and and how all these crew and cast members relate to each other and and the the music and the lighting and places that i tend not to dive so i'm i tend to dive deep down in the story you yeah. deep dive into like literally everything else <laughs> i try um so i think we complement each other really well there um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. So and and like I said, my understanding is that the other films go more into the that mother-child relationship, particularly with Ripley, um, and the perfect organism survivor thing. So that actually, I'm going to amend what I said earlier, where I wasn't particularly pulled in to want to see more. Like now that I'm having this conversation, I'm like, ooh, I really want to see what those films say about this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've talked myself into it. God damn it, you did, Nick. <laughs> um, I think that is... Oh, uh, one other support piece to just this bigger theme is when um, they're talking about... The, I think it's... I think it's Ian Holmes' character. They're talking about the alien creature after... Um, 
John Hurt after it explodes out of his chest and John Hurt's dead. Um, they're talking about mm-hmm. the alien and Ian Holmes says his child as if he birthed this alien granted out of his chest. Um, but that's another like reference to support this whole like mother child theme that runs mm-hmm. throughout the story. Yeah. And it was so like they didn't really respond to it other than to just kind of look at him for a second. Like, okay, that was weird. Yeah. Um, but it says something about Ian Holmes character mm-hmm. as this like Android who works on behalf of this organization that sees this, a- this perfect surviving organism as a potential weapon, but also with this really maternal, like child mother child thing it's it's really interesting to me yeah so that's it that's alien for me (laughs) i think that's alien for me as well and yeah we got a lot of we got a lot out of alien yeah um and now that i've convinced myself i would like to see the the subsequent alien films i know amanda amanda does as well and like we we've talked in the past that if we ever have a daughter we want to like Hang pictures of strong women on their wall, and man is like, we got to get a portrait of Ripley done, yep. put on the daughter's wall. <laughs> Hell yeah! I was like, yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> and apparently, she just gets more badass as the movies go on. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Actually, one last thing I want to talk about, and I, I really okay. appreciate this, is the character of Ripley. Um, in the original script, was not written to be a female. Um, that that was the way that it was told to me. Um, was um. She, I don't know if it was necessarily written to be a, um, yeah, I, I, the script, she was originally written to be like the standard male action hero, and it was decided in the casting process to change it to a female. And I just think that's, uh, uh, and I think that's part of the reason why she's such an interesting character is was that she's, you know, wasn't written to, um, specifically to be a female. And here you have an you know character that's written on the page to be pretty masculine, and then you have a woman coming in and playing that part. Yeah, and and I think there is, um, really, I, as as our society hopefully shifts more into seeing all of all of us as more equal, and and having hopefully more equal opportunities for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some lessons there and with like uh, the Night of the Living Dead casting of of a, of a black man in that era as the lead mm-hmm. role and it seems to me in both of those cases um, the, the role wasn't written for a black man lead actor or in this case a female action-y horror sci-fi you know she was her her role was that more of an action hero really even though it's a sci-fi horror film um i think so often it what i would be guilty of as a writer in in this is especially in my younger days writing i haven't done as much writing as i'd like to and and i'd like to think that i have evolved i believe i have um you write what you know and so much of that comes from trope like Mm -hmm. really like a lot of my development as a writer was like oh why did you write that is it because that's just what you've seen or do you actually believe that that's the right thing to write and so if we're if our 
if our foundation, if our jumping off point is what we know and what we know is white men, white, straight, cis, you know, uh, men in all of these roles, mm-hmm. you just you just default to that as a writer when that is the yeah. perspective you come from as a white male writer. Um, and so I really, like, I learn through through all of these examples and so like to think that like you just kind of you default to that male action hero and then like oh this could totally be a a female actor and quite frankly it makes it more interesting yeah i agree Um, what uh um george romero casting the black male in that role just because you know what he's the best actor for the job and not going yeah, but I wrote a white man. I had a white man in my head. Well, yeah. of course you did. You're a white man writing mm-hmm. a script based on the 10 million white male roles that you've seen in the past. Um, so it's you know it's good to have those reminders to um, because as a white male writer, like I have to check myself, but also like not go oh I'm gonna be so woke and write like this character this way just because it's you know it's it's tricky to find like well i have to write the story that's in my heart but also like not just be insular to like the white male perspective but you mm-hmm. you can't be you can't inauthentically write somebody else's perspective either yeah you know so that's i really appreciate these moments um that just keep me as a writer on my toes and and holds in a way that i can hold myself accountable i completely agree <coughs> so there we go well, look shit, at how that's... woke i am everyone look how woke i am <laughs> yeah <laughs> well shit i think that's alien nick yep there we go uh so and what then... do you want to do for our Oh, sorry. Continue. We we kind of talked about other things we've been watching, so um, I think yeah. we've got that covered. Is this the what do you want to watch next? Yeah, what should we do next? So we did one. We did uh, technically two from your shameless. So I feel like it should be one off of mine. I agree, and I think we t- last time we talked, we said let's do Alien first, and then, and I think this is what we should do next: Ghostbusters. Okay. Yeah, I'm down. We'll this, do Ghostbusters next. This is a film by the way, that was not in my top five for most of my life. And I recently reassessed my top five and I realized why the hell wasn't Ghostbusters in my top five because I love that movie so much. So it now has a place in my top five films. I'm also tempted to... So I'm going re- to watch Ghostbusters. I'm also tempted to re-watch uh, the, the new one as well. Ooh, just the call. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, just I feel like uh, if we're gonna talk about it, we might as well talk about the controversy surrounding. <laughs> you teach the controversy. Yeah. <laughs> I will, in preparation for this, I will attempt to watch all three. Oh, so we just gonna do Ghostbusters as a whole then? If uh, we can, if we can, we don't have to. Gotcha. But it's a treat for me anyway. So yeah. Well, I've not seen Ghostbusters. Well, actually, I okay. Before we get to it, I have seen... I've never seen Ghostbusters from beginning to end. It's one of those things through. where you picked it up on TV like 20 and minutes I saw little time. bits and pieces of it. Yeah. I feel like I've seen more of Ghostbusters 2. 
because that came on TV far Vigo more often. Vigo the Carpathian. Yeah. Um, and even when we were supposed to do Ghostbusters the last time, I started watching it, and when I realized um, it wasn't going to happen as an episode, I stopped watching it. <laughs> Just because I was like, well, I want to save it for when we actually watch it. So. Right. <laughs> cool. So, so, officially Ghostbusters. 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 And then we I'm, may or may not talk about Ghostbusters as a whole. Two and answer the call. Yeah. So Ghostbusters is next. Sweet. Cool. Well, Nick, this has been a great episode. Yeah, man. And um, Oh, uh, one more thing I want to talk about. I forgot about this. Um, so uh, my friends slash friend, depending on... Sometimes it's just one guy. Sometimes it's two guys. But I know them both and I like them both. Um, that do our closing music 10 speed yeah um i reconnected with the singer of that band recently and even though it's not available that i'm aware aware of in any public way if you did that song you should check out more of their stuff he did an extremely limited run of vinyl for his most recent album which i think is probably five years old now um and I I was able to jump on it, and I just received it the other day. I got a T-shirt and a vinyl copy of um, his latest album, which that's fantastic. I'm absolutely in love with, and I've been listening to it nonstop. So I just wanted to shout that out. Um, uh, if nothing else, a congratulations. But if you're into it, there may be a chance for you to to pick up some of this uh, limited run uh, stuff of theirs. It's really cool. One hundred percent. Ten speed with a hyphen. T-E-N hyphen speed. And I know I haven't recorded any in a while. Um, have we ha- have we gotten any uh, new submissions for what's on other people's shame lists? <clears throat> we have not with the um, the with... pandemic here. I, yeah. That's something that fell through the cracks on, on my well, end. We'll have to get back to it once yeah. we can start being around people again. Um, and uh, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us talk about movies. We love talking about movies. And if you're not down with that, I've got two words for you. Watch, Watch movies. movies. <laughs> that was, that was perfect. <laughs> yeah. I, I, was, I, was, I was pretty happy with that one, so I'm going to stop recording now. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Easton, Maryland, is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers, and is more often than not edited by Michael Byers. Any TV or YouTube versions of the show to date have been edited by Nick Richards, Tyler Hanna, or Dina Villani. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration from Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed, and our new kick-ass logo was designed by Amanda Byers. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors at Mill Creek Entertainment and Vinegar Syndrome. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links to all these tremendous folks, as well as the show, in the description below. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe.